Welcome to the NPR Network and the Boas 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 podcast with your host Keith McPeak, Rob Stone and myself Warren Booth. On today's show we will be talking about two species of the genus Chilobothrus, the Jamaican boa and the Puerto Rican boa. We hope you enjoy it. Things are good. Uh, yeah, just uh, crazy. It seems so long since we did our last show. Yeah, it's been a while. We've, we've all holidays kind of, and moving and all kinds uh, of things. Yeah, going you, on. you've been to Australia, right? I've been yeah. to Costa Rica. You know, it's uh, and then moving. Yeah, it's it's um, it's been kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. Rob put us on another great adventure to Australia, so everything went on the back burner uh, to to get ready for that and enjoy that that uh, trip for sure. So, Rob, you were there as well. You both went. Yeah, hundred um, oh. percent. Yep, we we went, and Eric came as did Matt Minatola and Teresa McPeak. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So how long was the trip for? time. Yeah, no doubt. How we long were the... there for seven days. Oh, that's short. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we usually do in terms of our time frame, just to try and max it out for that, that window. It's hard for Eric especially to get off for longer than that. Yeah. Um, and you lose two days in the process so that it's uh, realistically you're gone nine or ten days to be yeah. there for seven so you you guys went in October, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think I think I was in the airport as well, going to London for. Like yeah, a we were texting. Yeah, we were texting back and forth. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Very good. That's awesome. Yeah, very that was cool. A good time. Yeah. So the, so the move for you, Warren, that that's a pretty big life changing event right there. You know, it's uh, it's been in the works for, I think I was first contacted by Virginia Tech in October 2021 about my interest in this position and then interviews happened in December and then January or February and then another trip in April um, and since then it's kind of been you know I've, no, I've known it's happening um, but I negotiated with my with Virginia Tech and with my current or with my former university to stay for a, an extra semester um, just to help out because they were screwed for teaching. And I, I figured that if I, if I left then, they would have been in a lot of trouble um, just because yeah. of a, a, a reduced number of faculty and, and students needing classes. Um, so that helped. And, and staying back in Tulsa helped out with my family as well. You know, I, I wasn't going to be gone for an entire year, these trips back and forward. Um, but, you know, that, that all came to an end. My last day at the University of Tulsa was Christmas Eve. My first day at Virginia Tech was Christmas Day. Um, wow. And then I got here uh, last uh, Wednesday evening. So uh, I don't even know what date, date that was. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I'm here for like 10 days to two weeks at a time. And then I'll drive back to Tulsa and spend the rest of the month back there. And then I'll flip flop um, between um, uh, here and Tulsa for e- each month until May, uh, end of May, June, whenever our house should be finished being built. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to be moving my snakes up to a friend's place in Knoxville in March. Or most of my snakes, not all of them. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I think selling a house without 120 snakes in it is probably yeah. a, a lot easier than. Yeah. You know, I'll have some of them in the basement that I will disguise as moving boxes and stuff like that there. Right. Um, 
but uh, other than that, it's great. You know, it's, it's um, Blacksburg, Virginia is just a beautiful place, you know, so I'm, I'm really excited to be back on the, on the East coast. I, I've missed it having lived in Raleigh, North Carolina for nearly seven years. I'm really glad to be back here. Uh, where's that located in Virginia? Are you near the coast? Are you inland? Oh no, it's inland. It's, it's right, right in the Western, you know, it's in the Shenandoah Valley. Yeah. Um, so the, you know, it's about 2000 feet elevation. Um, oh, nice. But you're right. You know, you're close to the, to the, um, uh, Blue Ridge Parkway, not far from it. You know, it's oh, just, wow. yeah, it's just beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So. Nice. Big change. Yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So obviously you didn't, you, you're not pairing, you're not crazy enough to pair anything this year, are you? Well, <laughs> I said I wasn't going to. And then I thought, well, you know, I could put this trio of emeralds together. And then I thought I could put this pair of Trinidad Rishenbergeri together mm. and a pair of Brazilian rainbows and a pair of hog islands and some Costa Rican tea positives. Um, uh, yeah, there are more than I thought I would pair. Um, yeah. I thought maybe one or two, but I put a bunch together, not expecting them to do anything. Right. But I think that's what we all think, right? We we don't expect anything to do anything, but uh, that's usually when we have our best year. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> my friend could be inundated by stuff, mm-hmm. uh, or or not at all. You know, it would be nice to see some more hog island boas. It'd be nice to have some more Brazilian. Yeah. Uh, and if the emeralds do anything, you know, these are my. I put my anaconda phase group together. Oh, nice. Um, I just put the male in with and the two females in together in a large enclosure. So we'll see what happens. You know. Okay. Um, and uh, and a pair of Trinidad Trebos together just because they're kind of cool. So yeah, yeah, we need more of them in the hobby. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we just had another litter uh, a couple of months ago. So um, you know, that's I don't know how many. That's maybe five litters we've had, four or five litters we've had nice. in the last few years. You know, so we're getting to the point now where we're going to start distributing them to zoos. Good stuff. And then after that, we can we can see where we go. So. Yeah, good. Yeah, cool. And Rob, you've you've been quiet on social media and our little private chat groups, and also you must be uh, super busy uh, at the moment. <clears throat> yeah, just all the usual things, and you know, between that and holidays and all that, it's as ever. It's just keep you busy, but yeah. all good things. And it's uh, I'm certainly happy to listen to all the fun stuff that you guys have going. So. <laughs> Are you are you doing any pairing this year? Maybe one uh, Solomon Island tree boa female looks pretty good. Um, the one that had bred previously looks looks like she's thinking about it. And then we'll you know heading into the season, we'll probably do the Jamaican boa again, um, which would be cool and is certainly topical for tonight. But yeah, uh, and then you know rhino rats uh, presumably as well. But that'll be about it. Nice, good. How about you, Keith? Uh, I've been concentrating a lot on family this year, but uh, the last couple of months with the holidays and all that. But I think I do have a lot of pairings going on, but I'm really concentrating on trying to upgrade all my enclosures for the animals. Um, and and I like to build my own stuff. So for Christmas, I asked for a lot of tools to make the job easier <laughs> which i which i got so now i got a lot of projects on hand i have a lot of ideas for for different enclosures and and um setting things up a little bit different so that's kind of my goal but i do have some good stuff going on um 
looking forward to right now I have a Argentine boa that looks very promising. And it's been a very long time since I've uh, produced those. So this will be almost like a first for me again. Very cool. And, and it's Eugene Bissett's line. So they're really nice animals and excited to hopefully get a litter of those this year. Now I'm doing the Sinzini again, a bunch of other little things, but definitely excited about the Argentines. I love the fact that you are excited about the Argentines and you just kind of bypass the Sanzinia just like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a few, so I, I have two females and the males have been breeding them pretty consistently. And the one female, she's showing a lot of promising signs, but I, I'm used to my sand. I know there's some lines of Sanzinia females that don't really darken harmonial hormonally when they get gravid or when they once they ovulate so i don't see any color change in this girl so i'm kind of like on the fence about her but she's thick and she's hard and she's swelled up so i still have hope for her and then i have uh, the big female that dropped for me two years ago so she's been being bred and uh, things are looking good for her so might get two litters this year we'll see so are these both Easterns or Westerns or one of each? Uh, I only work with the Easterns now. I don't have any other Westerns. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I'm excited about that. It's, it's just that uh, it's the Argentines I just haven't done for so long, you know? So like I say, it's very exciting to kind of go through that again. What about Corrales? Are you pairing any Corrales? Uh, I have a pair of, you know, quote unquote, new locale. Um, northerns that I have together and other than that I think that's the only pair I'm going to put together for the emeralds I did put my uh, Costa Rican Rochenberger eye together I have a lot of breeding there so we'll see how the female goes um, and that's really it for the Corrales this year I think yeah that's cool that's awesome yeah I'd like to get a nice big viable litter of the Rochenberger eye I always I'll have, you know, a decent amount of uh, stillborns in every litter that I've had. And, you know, I'll have six to nine viable babies, you know. But I like to get a nice litter. I think you've had like up to 15 babies, haven't you? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I can't remember how many I had in the last one, whether it was 13 or something like that there. And no stillborn and no slugs. Yeah. Uh, And yet from that same female two years prior it was the same thing that you had, right? You know, she dropped like two or three babies. Yeah. Lugs. And then like a week later, she dropped like five or six babies and like five or six stillborn. Mm-hmm. So that was that, that first year was weird. Um, this year is different. And, you know, I'm trying to think what was different between those two. The first year that I had her, that, that she bred, she was in a large exoterra with a um, ceramic heating element and the basking sites were great. Um, and that happened. And then I moved them into these new enclosures and they're all radiant heat panels and, and UV lights. And, um, and it was a perfect litter. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. Um, it was just weird. The fact that both you and I, that same year we had yeah. these weird occurrences of yeah. produce some and then a big break and then produce more. Yeah, it was very strange. That's the f- one of the first for me with them. I've had uh, live, you know, bearing animals where they'll drop a baby maybe hours before, but like there was days in between. <laughs> it was just yeah, strange. 
mine was like five days. Cause I, I, I remember it happening and I thought, wow, you know, for a seven foot female to produce like five babies in a slug, I thought that's weird. Cause I've, I've had six feet Amazon tree boards producing 25 babies. Yeah. So it was just unusual. And then of course, a few days later, she dumped, dumped the rest, you know, but this year she was, or last year she was great. And all those babies, apart from one, they all did really well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they started on, um, you know, some of them I, I got going on, um, like fluff mice that were washed and then dipped in either chicken broth or used one of the, the scent, you know, like the, the lizard scent mm-hmm. or the animal scent or the frog scent. But most of them, you, I would put a, a bunch of pink rats into a bag, set it on a heat mat, get them nice and juicy and offer at night. And they, they just went mad for them. Yeah. So they, they were really easy to get feeding this year. Yeah. It's nice when you get a litter like that. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, they were great. The emeralds that I had earlier this year were all the same as well. So they all but one have gone. I've got one left to go. It's going to get shipped whenever I get back or whenever the weather's good. Nice. And the Sonoran boas that I produced, they've, they've all, they've all gone as well. So it was, it was a really good year for, I didn't produce a lot, but I was really happy with what I didn't produce, you know? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, so on tonight's topic, I've been looking at my Jamaican boas, Rob, and I'm trying to gauge their size and structure and all too. When I had visited you and uh, you were doing some last minute cleaning before we did our first trip to Australia. And uh, I'm trying to gauge, like, I think mine are probably in the size range of what those animals were then. Um, so I'm hoping maybe in another year, I would say, they'll be ready to give a shot. So tonight's show has got me very excited because you're the guy. This is your wheelhouse. So I- I'm interested to pick up some tidbits from you tonight. And this is something that's totally foreign to me. Huh? I've been offered Jamaican boas a couple of times. And I've never taken them. I, I will once I get relocated. So this is going to be a, an interesting one for me. So in the last few shows where I've been talking a lot, this time you're going to hear me talking very little. Everybody <laughs> will appreciate. <laughs> so, Rob, if you're ready, let's get into it, man. Awesome. Well, step one, I appreciate the uh, compliment there, Keith. But I would say that, you know, I've learned so much from Jeff Murray in particular. Uh, yeah. He and Michael Sena. Uh, have put together the website westindianboas.org and it's just an incredible resource in terms yeah. of all the uh, West Indian species. There's a ton of uh, referen- referential literature. We're going to cite a lot of things that come from there, so I'm going to be clear with that off the top. It's truly as a resource, westindianboas.org is uh, unmatched in terms of compilation of all these different things, including a lot of uh, published material and things like that that are synthesized or presented there, you know, as within the, within the ability to do so. Um, so it's, it's truly fantastic. Yeah. That being said, the genus Calibotris contains 14 species, including two that have been described in the last six years, Argentum, the Conception Island boa, and Ampelophus, the Hispaniolan vine boa, which is from, was described in 2021. Hylobothrus are a monophyletic group of boas dating to the Miocene, 23 to 5.33 million years ago, and they're most closely related to the anacondas uh, of the genus Eunectes. Hylobothrus was initially established as 
established as a genus in 1844 to describe or contain the Puerto Rican boa, though both it and the Jamaican boa were, were reassigned to Apicrides in 1893. Reynolds et al. in 2013, and I think that's uh, someone that Warren has done work with, resurrected Chylobothrys. The genus name Chylobothrys means a lip without pits and is a reference to the absence of labial heat pits. Though the phylogeny it presented is no longer accepted, a uniquely interesting analysis was conducted by Peter Tolson, 1987, that included the morphological characteristics of skin lipids and scent gland lipids. These traits influence reproduction, species recognition, and water retention. And as Jeff Murray and Michael Sana point out, the role of these characteristics in ecological niche fitness and speciation uh, is really super interesting and is really of note with these species uh, if you think about both Jamaican and especially Puerto Rican boas, they were uh, historically harvested for their uh, fats, right, to be to be both consumed and burned. Um, so that was a big part of their original sort of human use. So super interesting stuff there. Um, and not something – I don't think I've seen that really anywhere else. So it's kind of unsurprising in the context of species that are well known to be uh, muskers generally, I would say that that's a little bit overstated and overrated as reasons not to keep these. I think uh, it just sort of fits a uh, fits a narrative within the hobby. But uh, that being said, they they definitely have uh, the capacity to do it, and it's certainly something that then you know if you view it that way as okay, what can we what can we learn in terms of, of a phylogeny or relationship amongst things based on the characteristics of such a strongly produced trait? The fact that they were harvested for their fats, that's pretty remarkable. That is remarkable. They're not huge snakes, right? So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty incredible. Yeah, no, totally. That, yeah, that was thought to be sort of one of the, so both of these species are, uh, and we come to this in terms of sort of availability and captivity later, but in terms of um, as species go, these are species that were both on the, put on the Endangered Species Act in sort of the initial listings in the early 70s, um, and both had been, but particularly, well, I would say both have faced human use uh, issues for a long, human use or human interaction issues for the last several hundred years. And particularly in the context of Jamaican boas, as we'll come to, it definitely has had a strong impact on their populations. In terms of the Puerto Rican boas, I think maybe there was a, some sampling stuff that put them there. Certainly they, their populations had declined, but I think in terms of being perceived as uh, so between vulnerable and endangered, a lot of that was probably overstated and rep represented uh, either sampling error or um, – maybe overstating the impacts of development because particularly the Puerto Rican boas have shown to be very adaptable to urban environments and uh, like Facebook groups uh, from Puerto Rico with wild reptiles and things. People will post all the time photos of uh, Puerto Rican boas in urban environments. Yeah. I, I, I equate them kind of like carpet pythons uh, just from what I've seen on, on the internet, like you're saying, Rob, they always seem to take advantage of human habitats for rodents or whatever that are attracted to human establishments. And, and just from what I've seen, it, 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 they remind me of carpet pythons in Australia. 
So are they? Yeah, I think that's totally right, Keith. That... Go ahead, Warren. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was interrupting. Um, yeah, I, I think that's totally right there, Keith. That the um, that's really how I sort of contextualize them in terms of both as a captive animal and their you know their existence in the wild and what they remind me of as a captive animal is really a coastal carpet python. Um, Puerto Rican boas to me are very much a similar snake in terms of uh, physiology, structure, how they uh, how they've adapted to human habitation, and just sort of as a as a captive animal. So we'll, yeah, we'll hit it. Get into some of those things. I have a few notes here on uh, both Jamaicans and Puerto Ricans, and then we can really get into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jamaican so boas were originally described in. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask one thing quickly. Um, so these these are restricted to single islands each, or are they found on? You know, are, are they distributed more broadly? Um, and just call Jamaican boas or, or Puerto Rican boas, or are they restricted to the island of Jamaica and Puerto Rico? Yeah, perfect. Um, so Jamaican boas were originally dis- uh, distributed on Jamaica and a small island, Goat Island, uh, off the coast there. It appears they've been extirpated from Goat Island, so they're just in Jamaica now. Historically, Jamaican boas were distributed uh, throughout much of Jamaica, based on the descriptions from the last several hundred years of literature. Today, they occur on less than 10% of the island across 20 isolated pockets. The largest contiguous habitat that seems to suit them is in what's called the cockpit country in Jamaica. A 2016 study on habitat use indicated several potential habitat types that are underused by Jamaican boas. Um, it seems the, the preference or where they're found now is tall forests and areas with heavy canopy cover. This is thought to re- reflect uh, anthropogenic or human pressure rather than actually species sort of capacity. They occur in banana plantations foraging for rodents, but are frequently killed by locals when they're encountered. So it seems like they essentially a lot of habitat that would other was historically suitable or would otherwise be suitable isn't suitable in Jamaica because there's a very strong prejudice against these snakes in Jamaica. Uh, it seems the majority of the pictures, there's one YouTube, uh, one YouTube from Jamaica where the fellow will go and relocate these. And those, that seems to be sort of the, obviously the optimal situation, whereas most of the exposure is people killing them despite the fact they're in an endangered species act list, uh, listed animal. There aren't any venomous snakes in Jamaica, so it really doesn't make sense that people are afraid of snakes in the way that they are. Um, as we'll get into with food, they they do uh, will go after captive chickens and their eggs. So, you know, you can see some negative exposure there, but for the answer to be killing an endangered species, uh, just to kind of avoid that problem, seems a bit uh, draconian, shall we say. Uh, in terms of the uh, range... Uh, Puerto Rican boas. Um, they're distributed widely, but only on the main island, to your point. So Puerto Rico has something like the main island and then 200 additional islands and Ks that were connected not all that long ago, or at least some of which were connected all that not all that long ago, but somewhat surprisingly, they only occur on the main island. They occur in 62 of 83 municipalities uh, in Puerto Rico. They occur in a wide variety of habitats, like we've talked about. Basically, all the, for the most part, all of those that are present within the main island of Puerto Rico, including rainforest, karst landscape, caves, 
dense tropical deciduous forest and, as we were talking about, altered environments, uh, including urban areas. Let's see, so, other fun factoids. Jamaican boas were uh, – go ahead, Keith. Um, I, I was just going to ask, it seems just from what you're telling me here that the Jamaican boas seem to be more adaptable to – I'm sorry, are less adaptable to uh, urbanization than, than the Puerto Rican boas? That's what it, that's sort of where the records are at at this point. Although I would say that it seems like that's probably not anything to do with the capacity of the snake or the conditions of the environments within their respective locations, as much as it is the attitude of locals to snakes generally in those areas. The and, and, Jamaican boas and, could be more widespread, except that people kill them on site as, for the most part. And and to that point, are, are is there a tremendous size difference in adults, or is there a more cryptic nature in one species versus the other that makes them more vulnerable to humans seeing them and killing them versus the other species? Or are they pretty much kind of live the same kind of a lifestyle? Uh, I think really it's just um, I would I think unfortunately we're in the space where it's uh, just the attitude in Jamaica is so different from the attitude in Puerto Rico in terms of how people interact with you know at least these respective snakes. Um, the in Jamaica it seems like the the boas really are limited to areas where they're are fewer people, and so there are fewer people encountering them, um, and that's you know kind of puts us in that context of um, tall tropical forest with um, tall forest and canopy cover, so that those are areas that are not developed in the same way. The plantation uh, stuff, you would you would think that there would be that feedback loop of they're consuming these rats that are going after the uh, plantation crop. And they're providing providing that service. And again, being in such a, a strong space where there there's no mistaking these for a venomous snake. There aren't venomous snakes there. Um, I suppose it's, it would be a right on my part to to validate that. I, that's my belief. But uh, I suppose just for the form of the thing, I'll I'll validate that that's true. Um, but um, you know, it's, it's not a case of confusion. It's a case of prejudice. Yeah. Well, some cultures also, it doesn't matter if you tell them they're not venomous or not harmful. They're, they're just going to believe that they're harmful or venomous and can hurt you. Um, no matter what you tell them. So, uh, I, yeah, I believe, I believe that that's true. We're kind of Google is giving us a mixed bag here of, um, yeah, I don't believe so. There's some a suggestion of a adder known as a common viper, but most things don't agree with that, and certainly not dangerous to humans, and definitely wouldn't look like a Jamaican boa. And right, I don't think that's even correct. Um, so yeah, I, I don't. It's you know just an expression of prejudice to a to human detriment. Uh, both in terms of the actual production of these things and, um, you know, uh, rats are problematic to everyone. Yeah. So, and in terms of as a pest vector. So really doesn't make any sense. Um, 
Just a couple of fun factoids in terms of the taxonomy associated with these. The Jamaican boas were originally described in 1725, prior to the introduction of the Linnaean binomial nomenclature system. Uh, they were redescribed in 1901, interestingly, using the species name Subflavis, which was associated with the 1725 description, but the documentation didn't reference uh, at all the fact that that description was made in 1725. Um, Subflavis is taken to mean yellow, blonde, or, quote, under yellow, Subflavis uh, there, um, maybe referencing interstitial coloration. I, I don't know exactly what under yellow would mean. But, yeah, there's a bit of a uh, taxonomy has always been fraught, let's say, in the sense that uh, it's pretty intriguing that it, the the same name would be utilized, but without reference to to its source uh, 175 years later. Right? They would just happen to say, oh, yeah, we should use, use this somewhat oblique term to describe these. Um, it just happens to coincide, but... I think but no reference to the fact that that happened. Yeah, I think part of it is that, you know, in 1910 versus 17, whatever, you know, there's no Google Scholar. You know, you can't turn around on Google and say, right, well, has somebody described the species yet or before or whatever? And therefore, for many... Well, know, I'm just saying that I'm not sure that you would call it the same. To me, it's that's totally, totally conceivable, and I, I accept that that's entirely possible. But I would suggest that the fact you would come to that same sort of combined uh, non-singular Latin word as the species name description is just, ah, I don't know, that's heck of a coincidence. So it's it's entirely possible, and I definitely, you know, am on board that that point is true. We, I think, uh, to your point, right, nowadays it's so easy for us to be aware of all the different things that are happening. Um, we, we certainly saw it with... It's amazing to me in some ways that, as you say, like a description from 1865 and then another in 1870, the idea that because uh, the initial, uh, as, as some uh, taxonomists or uh, people who consider themselves to be taxonomists nowadays utilize, right, in terms of the details of publication to uh, formally put a name out into the space, um, those things represent conditions in the 1700s and 1800s. It's amazing to me in some instances that there even would be the capacity to have awareness of other things going on in the world at that time. Um, and to your point, yeah, we definitely understate uh, the realities of that impact. I just say this this particular instance, it's weird to me that uh, or it would be very coincidental that you would get that commonality. Uh, so I, I think here maybe we're looking at someone not respecting the process in the sense of saying it wasn't done within the Linnaean system and structure. So kind of utilizing that, that work and to, to pull the epithet for the species name of subflavus, but not uh, necessarily giving credit to that having happened before. Interesting. So in terms of, go ahead, Keith. Um, no, I was just looking at some of the notes that you had given us. Um, I, I didn't know if you were going to get into the feeding in the wild because I find that very interesting. Yeah, hundred um, percent. The just as a, to close the loop, the Puerto Rican boa was described in 1843, as we talked about 
uh, above. The next year it was put into, or the uh, genus that they're presently in, Chylobothrus, was created to uh, to host that species. Um, the species name Inornatus means un- unadorned. As uh, folks who have seen, either interacted with or seen photos of these, there is a range of presentation such that some have sort of a, a lighter background coloration with darker blotching. Um, but some particularly older animals can appear almost unicolor, and that's, uh, I would say it's an impolite but not entirely uh, misstated scientific name there. And, and Rob, didn't you um, didn't you say that these guys can and actually change color somewhat also, depending on temperature, mood, whatever? Yeah, they definitely can. Not quite as much as a, like a candoia, uh, where you see a strong day to night variation, but in terms of seasonally and um, there, you know, it's I would say it's more akin to a an Irian gyre or a pop wind carpet python, where you have a day to night sort of lightening and darkening. Um, they definitely definitely can appear lighter or darker, and on animals that show a pattern. Uh, it can thus appear more or less pronounced throughout the course of a season in particular. And they do, some of them, uh, particularly gravid females, can get very dark so that um, with their iridescent shine, they can, you know, they're not quite a white lip, a uh, southern white lip python, but they can certainly give a strong black presentation. Mm. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember finding a picture of one that was heavily patterned, and I sent it to you. And I'm like, Rob, if you ever have any that look like that, and you're like, Well, just wait because <laughs> it'll look like that at some point during the day. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Yeah, no doubt. So, yeah, it's super, super interesting. The Jamaican boas don't seem to do that. Um, they don't have uh, a ton of range of variation. They will. Seemingly, maybe have a little seasonal change in their color presentation, and maybe that's diet, right? A reflection of carotenoids and things. If we're adding those to feeders, we, uh, which maybe brings us to feeding in the wild, and then we can get into captivity. And uh, you both will, despite your um, experience or not, with with either of these species, you'll definitely have a lot of input and useful insight because they really fit very neatly into the standard bow presentation. Um, Wild Puerto Rican boas are opportunists that take rats, mice, and birds. The population at Cueva de los Culebrones is well known to congregate at the entrance to the cave to capture bats. There's been a lot of study around that. That particular cave is home to six species of bats with an estimated aggregate population of more than 300,000 bats at a given time. Um, additionally, recent observations have shown them uh, constricting, uh, constricting presumably for consumption, uh, an iguana, wild subflavus. Uh, hey, Keith, babe, we'll, we'll see what you make of this. So they principally eat rats and birds, including captive chickens and their eggs, but they also are known to eat black-billed and yellow-billed parrots and their eggs uh, as a wow. natural prey species. And wow. juveniles eat bats at caves. I'm shocked that they they'll and take one the other. Eggs. Yeah, so one interesting thing on that, I think it was in the context of chickens. Um, one was found that it consumed a bunch of chicken eggs, and I don't, I don't remember if it had been killed or if they, 
you know, essentially palpated a regurgitation or, or what the, the circumstance was, but it had eaten seven chicken eggs, all of which were still whole, um, which I, I obviously in the context of pythons that eat eggs, I don't know if we usually then see in, so in non, uh, obligate egg feeders, right? They don't have the structure to pierce egg, but I don't know if that standard sort of, as we talked about them being kind of both species similar in lifestyle to carpet pythons, if we have carpet pythons that'll eat, you know, captive chickens or their eggs, if those are typically then kind of broken in the digestive process, if it's a reference to how thick the shells are, um, or if they're typically, I would think for to get at the sort of nutritional capacity of that beyond sort of eating away at the calcium in the eggshell, um, at some point they have to deteriorate to be digested as opposed to just passing through. So um, maybe it just re- reflected them being fresh, but sort of an interesting point that they were swallowing them whole. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever tried feeding yours chicken eggs or quail eggs or do you know anybody with captive animals that have tried to feed uh, to feed eggs? I don't know, not really. And the, the, so the interesting thing I would say about uh, Jamaican boas generally is that certainly compared to Puerto Ricans, they're in general a little bit more. Um, they're not quite as agro feeders, whereas so Puerto Rican boas are just like a carpet python, where they're gonna they're always ready to go, um, and their you know their their food drive is very high. Jamaican boas, on the other hand, seasonally have a very high food drive, but they're just, they tend to have stronger predilections in terms of wanting their food presented in a certain way or to, um, meaning, you know, to, to, to have a successful feed to bite the rodent, um, in the kind of right area on the face that promotes, promotes consumption in the same way that I've really seen with Apodora, uh, and Gavin expressed to us in the context of Owen Pelly Pythons. Um, that they have a, you know, there are just some species that are a little bit more, uh, maybe they're less sure of themselves in terms of a feeding event, and they just sort of have predilections of they want to take it in a certain way. I would say that subclavus are, uh, while not as extreme in those areas, in general, are a little bit more specific in terms of how they like things. So it, I don't know. I just have a hard time imagining it, it can be challenging enough when they want to feed to get a really consistent feed into them. So um, it's hard to imagine them taking taking chicken eggs or quail eggs or anything kind of in yeah. that context. Yeah. Maybe if you I, set I, up a net, I guess that's yeah. how it, you know, you could promote that. Yeah. I, I know my pair, as I was raising them, you had kind of given me that heads up that that's how they can tend to be. And, and I know for sure, like, um, now they're different when it comes to feeding. But as I was raising them, I had to present the, you know, same sized rat and place the pre-killed rat just before dark in the exact same spot on the exact same log. So that when the snake came out of the hide at night, its nose was right there, that it was the first thing that it came in contact to. If I placed that rat any other way inside that cage it would still be there in the morning. But if I placed it in that same spot so that when it came out of its hide at night and it ran into that rat, it would eat it every time. It was, it was the strangest thing. Now, now they've, they've 
I've grown them up now. I'm going to have to move them, which is kind of stressing me out. But I grew them up in a bigger cage, and I just packed that cage full of, um, they like a lot of hide and contact security, I find. So I just had that cage packed with a lot of um, hide spots pretty much throughout the whole cage. But now they're kind of outgrowing that cage, so I'm going to have to move them. So I'm, I'm curious to see how they settle in and feed and all. So right now they're in it's such a routine. It's it's not a, a too much of a struggle to get them to feed. But I think when I move them, I could go through another learning curve with them um, as far as to keeping them consistent. So I'm assuming as babies, they're probably lizard feeders. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, and they're uh, anola species. Um, and I, when we when we talk about breeding, I do have a um, some thoughts on that that I've kind of had based on my experience producing them in 2021, um, and kind of the the experience of that litter and, and how that went. Um, so let's, we can, um, one last note, just in terms of being in the wild that I did want to toss out there, because this was thought in, in addition to human uh, interactions leading to decline in Jamaica, um, the mongoose was in, uh, introduced uh, to great detriment to wild Jamaican, um, the wild Jamaican environment uh, overall. But a 1982 study did find evidence that a large Jamaican boa had consumed a mongoose. So that's amazing. Um, maybe at least on the large end, they can, uh, you know, kind of push back. So yeah, that was taken as a really positive sign. Now, Rob, do you know why the was the mongoose introduced for rats and farms and trying to, to subdue the the rat population? I think that's right. Yeah, and it kind of in the same way of a lot of historical introductions uh, has gone poorly for the environment that wasn't prepared for them. Yeah, meanwhile, they have the Jamaican boa that could do the job <laughs> and unknowingly kill on site. Yeah. Yeah, not great. So in terms of, um, I, I don't think we really talked about the size on the, for the most part, uh, the snout stent length, uh, so for Puerto Rican boas, is generally about six feet for both males and females. In general, as they of the same age, females will be larger, particularly once they're mature. Um, but yeah, going back to that point of kind of in the same vein as a coastal carpet, that's that's basically what we're looking at. And so somewhere in the four uh, four to six foot range in general, with a girth of probably two two to three inches across, particularly on a larger female. Um, and then obviously is the with age and these. As with most boids, longevity records on these were talking, you know, more than two decades uh, with animals still going at that time. Obviously, things can happen, but uh, just as a general expectation, certainly teens to 20s is something that we're looking at absent uh, additional factors coming into play. Those animals can can get larger. I know Tom Crutchfield has a couple really big ones uh, that he keeps outside and things. So um, then that's in the context of the Jamaican boas. But in general, any sort of suitable boy cage makes sense. Um, in terms of temperature, the natural exposure is uh, kind of lows in the low 60s up through highs uh, in the upper 80s or 90. So they really fit into sort of the standard boy typology. Both of them will uh, exhibit arboreal behavior, particularly when they're smaller. Um, 
if we're providing a context within the cage that'll support it, um, they, you know, I, I think they, as long as they feel sure about it with greater size, they'll still utilize those things. I think in captivity, that's something that we run into where um, we say that larger animals don't utilize arboreal uh, areas as much in general, but that's probably a functionality of sort of confidence within the, the structures that we're putting into that environment. In my experience, they do really well in cork hides and flats that are uh, set up to allow sort of not only do those textures give additional usable surface area within the cage, um, as opposed to the standard uh, chondro approach or whatever, they are, I guess, as a, an additional point, they, they are more akin to annulated boas or Amazon boa where they're going to look for multiple points of contact and generally sit rather than perching in a standard sort of uh, emerald or green tree python sort of presentation. Yeah. I was going to ask that question because in at the zoo in Tulsa, they've got uh, some Jamaican boas and they're always on the tr- always in the trees, but they're thick branches. You know, they're kind of logs that are kind of diagonally placed that are, you know, five, six, seven inches in diameter. Um, uh, so it, it, I've never seen them in all the times that I'm there. I've never seen them on the ground. So I was curious. I was going to ask that question. Are they more like the, you know, my annulated, the way I've got my annulated set up, they rarely are on branches. They're normally in, I put in these PVC tubes uh, at different levels, and they're normally sitting in those or on top of those. So it sounds like they act very, very similar. And they, yeah, that's they my experience. Uh, yeah. It's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't have that kind of laterally compressed body, but right. So that they don't have the same body structure as a, as an annulated or an emerald, you know, um, from the ones that I've seen, they're slightly more round. It's more car. They sound exactly carpet python. They sound like the, the new world carpet python, basically. Yeah. I think that's totally right. Keith, what, what's been your experience? I know you, you do some interesting things. Yeah. So with your setup. Yeah, I use a lot of PVC actually in their cage. And then I also use uh, standard hides. Um, I like them weighted. Um, but I do notice that they, they go to the Dow perches. I provide them definitely when they're hungry. Um, they can be out on that perch during the day when they're hungry and I can feed them at any time if they're on that perch and they'll eat. If they're in their hide or, um, in a, PVC and I try to feed them, they're, they're a little bit more reluctant to take the food. But if I see them up on those perches and I'm working in the room, they're, they're game on. They're, you know, I can just barely get the rat in the cage and they're, then they're taking it off the forceps. So definitely seem to me that they go to the arboreal state when they're hunting. But they're, they're not coiled up like an emerald. They're draped over it kind of thing. Is that right? Yeah, they're not, they're definitely, I don't notice them coiled up like, uh, the classic chondro emerald thing. They're, I have a lot of, like you said, I put a lot of cross, um, pieces in my, um, dowels, um, and they definitely lay in a more loose coil. Um, and, it, you know, again, I think they're hunting, so they're going to be more ready for action than, then, um, a coiled up resting pose, you know. Yeah, 100%. Um, have you observed a lot of uh, 
seasonal variation in their willingness to feed Keith. I know that's something something that it sort of defines my experience with them, even more so than the Puerto Rican bows. But then again, I am subjecting them to light cycling, temp and humidity cycling. I would food cycle them anyway, but certainly all those things kind of feed into, you know, so they're all pushing in that direction. I know you, um, my room has a lot more volatility and fluctuation in temperature than yours does. So I'm curious yeah. if you see the same kind of stark feet seasonality and feet, uh, willingness to feed or exhibiting that sort of uh, behavior associated with feeding. I don't. And actually that kind of has me concerned because I know you've told me that in the past, how you see a seasonal, you know, cycling of the feeding where mine, it was more um, when they were young, like I say, they were more picky and harder to get consistently feeding. But right now for the last 10 months, I'm going to say it's, it's pretty much on feeding day. They're, they're ready to feed and they feed every time. Like even uh, if they're going opaque, which when they were younger, even when they were go- uh, going opaque, they would not touch anything at that time until they went through the shed. But now I notice um, they're pretty aggressively feeding. I don't know how long your cycles last, but I'm just saying for the last 10 months, mine have been on fire feeding. Um, and I don't know, maybe once they totally mature, that'll come into play a little bit more. But I, I do have them in, um, well, you know, I have them in my back room and I have the Corrales and Rochenberger eye and everybody in there. So I do cycle that room. So they are going through a, a temperature drop at night and, and reduced daylight. Um, I didn't food do, I didn't intentionally do any food cycling with them, but they're definitely having a seasonal cycle happening to them, uh, in that back room. And that, and they've actually been in that back room their whole life. So they, they've been doing it from day one up until now getting that cycle in the winter. And what's that low temperature get to? In, in your room um, I, I go I go down in that room I don't go below like 71 72 at night okay yeah I mean I think in the low point on mine will be in the lower 60s like 63 64 you know kind of on the the very coldest nights um, so a little bit stronger but not I will say that at some times uh, I still if it sort of if that happens to coincide with um, them having a, a wild hair or whatever that I will see them even still feed uh, at that time. So it's more I, I agree that I think yours in terms of that response you're getting now is probably a reflection of being in that they're out of the stage where they're more um, both both in terms of the routine and the time that you've had them, um, but also having gotten a little bit more age, they tend to become uh, better, more consistent feeders with that time. And in, mm-hmm. when they're in that window, I have a, a few of them that are in that same window that yours are right now. And I will say that those have a uh, less of a strong seasonality than either the adults or the smaller ones. Yeah, I, I figured maybe it was coming as they get more sexually mature. So what age are yours? Yeah, so they might come with then time to. Yeah. What age are yours? Uh, 2019. Okay. Actually, 2018. I'm sorry, 2018. Okay. Yeah, to that point, Warren, relative to, I would say that in general, they are smaller than people would think because 
And I think it's mostly a reflection of the, the sort of the um, challenge to get them to eat consistently, whether it's a sort of the seasonality aspect or the uh, just finickiness, potential finickiness in terms of growing them up, combined with, I think people in general, I know certainly I would fall into this category, you know, are careful with something that's so precious to them that, um, and their metabolism, kind of the, the nexus of all those things, is that um, even at four or five years old, they're not as big as if they were a carpet python, right? In terms of, in, in general, if you look at most animals, I think people who haven't worked with them are always surprised by the size relative to age of most of the captive animals that, that people see. Um, What's their metabolism? I don't think, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to, it not, yeah, I mean, they don't, their growth relative to food input is not huge. It's not as slow as something like, like a candoia, but it's also definitely not like, um, a corralis, right? That really responds in terms of growth to, to inputs that go in. Um, so that in terms of, you know, uh, getting to adult size and those sorts of things, um, it really is sort of a five or six year process. On, on these for the most part, and you'll even be, I, I know what sort of the perpetual interaction uh, that I see on, online and things with the new ones is, these are three years old, and, you know, well, part of it is the, the size that they're born at, but, yeah, the other is an expression of um, their lack of a, a burst response to feeding. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you know, like I find... And you're probably the same, the Corallus granadensis, they grow incredibly slowly. You know, so yeah. I'm just curious about, about their, you know, their wild diet and how that drives it. If they're, you know, I haven't read any studies on these, so I don't know how much of their diet is composed of bats, for example. You know, so bats realistically aren't, they're not that big for many of the species. So, you know, they could be a very small intake frequently, but a, a low caloric intake that they're burning off pretty quickly to go and hunt for these things. And, and it just adds time to, to, to put any kind of growth on these animals. Pretty fascinating. A hundred percent. And the one thing that's, uh, that, that raises in my mind that uh, I hadn't thought to point out here is that particularly in the Puerto Rican boas that are more associated, particularly as adults, at least in their, you know, those that are in a cave landscape, um, the, I find that Puerto Rican boas respond, uh, more consistently to smaller food items. So mm-hmm. even on my adult Puerto Rican boas, um, I feed them, uh, weaned mice. So mm-hmm. we're talking something, you know, a five foot snake that's two or three inches across, but mm-hmm. their response to a large hopper or weaned mouse is a lot stronger than even, you know, a retired breeder mouse, just in terms of willing to go for it. Uh, they're they're very responsive to small items, and I find I have more success feeding them an item a day, three or four days in a row. And then mm-hmm. with it, so within the the sort of the windows that they're eating. So if there's sort of a spring window, a um, a spring window, a fall window, I might be feeding them seventy percent of those nights that are within that window, and maybe the total mass consumed over the year wouldn't be strange to someone that was. Instead of approaching them, trying to feed them, you know, a rat once a week across the the entirety of the year, but uh, the response to those small items 
exactly in the vein you're talking about of kind of replicating the consistent consumption of small prey even is probably reflecting they're probably not going out every single night but maybe two or three or four nights a week within that feeding season which presumably also will then coincide with the the real bat movement season or especially those that are right in in general it's immature animals that are most likely to be caught in those sorts of mass aggregation or you know mass in uh, entrance and um, exodus sort of situations um Probably yeah. we're really seeing that replication there, but yeah, gorging on a very in a short period of time on a lot of prey items that are small, um, and then probably persisting for a long period of time without much food as well. So, I mean, from what from what I know from bats too, definitely. the uh, the parents the the mother will leave the young bats you know on the cave ceiling right, and they go out to hunt at night. So who's to say during that breeding season the the boas aren't taking advantage of that food source, gobbling down five or six babies at a sitting? It'll be interesting, you know, with the with the new book coming out yeah. on, the, on the boas, then it'll be interesting to see if if Graham and uh, and Bob Henderson have actually got any chapters on feeding in the wild. If there's been any real studies on that, again, it's something I haven't looked into. But it's um, it's a pretty fascinating call. There's some, yeah, there's some cool stuff. The they've um, because there occur at such densities. There's um, I know the herpetological highlights guys on, on the front end of their podcast. So I think it was episode three or four talked about a paper that was looking at those uh, highlighting the sort of humor in the idea that the uh, paper used handling time, and they thought, you know, something without hands to uh, pre- present that as handling time was a little bit interesting for a snake. But um, there's a lot of work that's been done on a handful of those populations where it seems like the snakes uh, essentially are interacting in a non-negative way towards one another so that they're aligning in a non-competitive way, but in a way that then creates almost a wall of snakes uh, that the bats have to fly through to mm-hmm. enter and exit the cave, um, non-competitively coexisting in that in that way. Uh, at least that was sort of the suggestion of the paper that, that they had referenced on the podcast. And I know that that m- mention is made of that on uh, Jeff and Michael's site as well. So, yeah, there's, there's a ton yeah. of interesting stuff. There's also they're eating bats that have fallen on the floor. Uh, there was a record of one eating a mummified bat that was on the, uh, the floor of the cave and all sorts of interesting things. Yeah, the fact that these can disperse where they're not competing with each other suggests that, that the food items are not a um, a limited resource, that there's an abundance of them. Uh, and therefore, there's there's a lack of competition as a result of, of that. And, and when we think about bat roosts and the emergence from bat roosts and the return to bat roosts, you know, they tend to be very high densities of animals that are coming and going from those. And therefore, the likelihood that you're going to... I've seen videos of these... And they're just flailing around in the air. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Yeah. You know, their mouths are open and they're just yeah. flailing around in the air, hoping that one of them just bumps into them and then they go for it. It's kind of remarkable. Um, so yeah, you know, there's a high, a, a, an abundance of food items probably for a short period of time each year. And therefore they just, they just take advantage of that. Yeah, definitely. And they're, so they're not limited, uh, just to be clear, they're not limited to that environment, but the densities and a lot of the study then, you know, right, everyone 
Uh, it certainly helps if your study animal uh, will present itself in the sort of density that you know gives you a, lot, a high sample size. But um, they're not limited to that environment. But certainly the density in those in those areas, probably seasonally, as you point out, Warren, is uh, can be really high. So in that case, I wonder: is there any seasonal change in their diet? You know, will they will they take advantage of bats whenever they are in high abundance and preferentially? And then once that those, that abundance drops, will they then move to a different habitat to take advantage of, of rodents or or lizards or birds or whatever? I wonder, do you see that change in their diet as the season progresses? Uh, to me, I, I don't want to give a solid answer to that. I would say my impression from the literature was more that there are just sort of populations that exist within um, – so there's a cave population, so to speak, and then there are others, you know, other populations. So as opposed to a singular population that's moving throughout the the broader landscape that that might imply, I think there are just a dense, a particularly high density in that uh, where that resource is available, at least within sort of that limited, you know, limited time frame. But um, I'm sure, right, that then to the extent that that is seasonally limited that there would be movement into other environments. I just don't know if those, what the carrying capacity in those other environments that don't have that necessarily have that same density, if that's going to support also the onboarding of those animals or whether they sort of stay in their, uh, stay in their area, even through the lean times, uh, because there isn't the, the environment won't support an additional, the carrying capacity of the, of the neighboring environments already is full with its own population. Well, that, that's pretty interesting. I mean, if you look at killer whales, right, there's populations of killer whales that only know how to hunt seals. There's populations that know how to hunt salmon. There's populations that know how to hunt other whales. Um, and, and it's pretty interesting to think that reptiles um, on an island like this could possibly have populations that are specialized bat feeders. Others are specialized rodent feeders. Others are specialized bird feeders, possibly. I'm not saying that's what's happening, but it's pretty interesting thought to think um, so with, that they can fill a niche. With that killer whale example, I think there's a couple of years ago, an author, I think it was Moran et al., um, they showed that those killer whales that were the mammal hunters versus the fish eaters mm-hmm. uh, versus transients were actually different species. Really? Yeah. So they sequenced, the original work was done on one or a couple of mitochondrial genes. And they, they, that suggested that they were all the same species. And then they sequenced the entire mitogenomes and they showed them to be different species. Wow. If I am correct, I think that's, it was a couple of years ago since I read that paper, but that's a really cool example because that, they showed different traits in that the mammal hunters, uh, whenever they're hunting would go silent and they wouldn't speak to each other. Right. Whereas the fish eaters would, would be busy ch- talking to each other because the fish couldn't hear them. Right. You know, really, really cool behaviors. Um, yeah, but, but I, I see what you're getting at. I see what you're getting at. What we should do, you think, thinking about this right now, whenever the new book comes out, we should get, um, we should try and get Bob and Graham on to talk about these kind of, uh, interesting questions because they probably have a lot more, well, they do have a lot more experience in the field. Yeah. yeah. You know, it'll be a nice way to kind of advance this kind of conversation. Uh, Absolutely. Time. That would be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%.
Uh, do you guys think we're good to transition into breeding on these? Yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. Uh, in general, based on the conditions uh, that I offer, right, so with a, a strong seasonality like we spoke of, uh, where the ambient temperature in the room will be kind of a nighttime low in the mid-60s in uh, the middle of winter, which obviously then is going to be associated with it being more dry, more dry than it already is uh, here. But uh, And then in midsummer, we're talking a low temperature, ambient low temperature in the upper 70s to low 80s, just based on uh, the conditions in my room. I pair them in April and May, so we're starting to get some of that warm-up. Um, copulation is uh, frequently observed both uh, at night and occasionally during the day. I'll see the sort of tail sticking out, uh, intertwined. Uh, in general, babies are born the end of August through mid-September on that, that time frame. So we're seeing a post-tabulation shed in the end of May, beginning of June, uh, that then puts us into uh, birth uh, in either late August or early to mid-September. A wild uh, telemetry study on Puerto Rican bows found an increase in male movement in the wild between April and June with a peak in, of feet peak in female movement in July, potentially on that end due to the authors speculated due to increased foraging for food at that time to, to substantiate that. Um, mature males of both species will, con will combat one another, and utilization of multiple males can be helpful to, to promote breeding. Uh, males, when they're introduced, will musk and constrict one another. Uh, in Jamaican boas, these interactions have been lethal in captivity on several occasions. Mm. Particularly in Puerto Rican boas, it's common to see males wrap females around the vent, so they'll uh, be locked up, and then they'll uh, wrap themselves around females, um, either singularly or in a mating ball with multiple males, uh, as is both those visualizations are pretty common in the closely rela related anacondas. But yeah, it gives that same presentation locked up, and then you have this this male that appears much smaller, whether it is or uh, actually isn't. The the presentation of it is sort of the the singular female sitting there within this male um, um, locked up, and then in ribbons around or in, in ribbons around the vent. Have you used um, multiple males? Have, partners. I'm sorry, Rob. Have you used multiple males? I have not. In your I put in sheds. I've put in sheds from other males, um, but I haven't found it to be necessary. Gotcha. So, yeah, I've produced uh, both of these species without utilizing multiple males. We've, I think we've talked about it before, right, Keith, that in general, I do think in captivity, we as reptile keepers in general, to the extent that we're, uh, we want to be record keepers as well or to be able to present this is clearly the sire of this litter and to have that, you know, be a singular animal in the, the context of a particular litter, right, rather than a multiple paternity sort of situation. Um, I do think in general we do, we produce less animals based at, overall based on that desire to, the desire to be able to say these are the parents right. makes us um, have less animals about which to say that because I do think in the wild context, probably for both these species based on uh, particularly Puerto Rican boa, but we're talking about animals that occur in densities where they are going to be exposed to one another. And so the the sort of concept of multiple males being involved in a 
singular reproductive event is probably something that we're seeing. And the, as induced populators, right, we can be in a space where some of these species might um, the active copulation for a particular length of time or number of times might be influencing whether we actually get ovulation at all. And so, as I say, kind of, kind of the big picture view, the desire to be able to say this is a sire makes it so that we have less uh, offspring about which to right. ascribe that label. Right. Um, let's see. Cannibalism of prospective partners uh, has been seen in Jamaican boas with instances of both males and females being the one consuming the other. Um, and Tom Crutchfield did have an observation that he posted on Facebook a couple of years back of two mature females that were fighting during the breeding season in terms of uh, biting and constricting one another. Though, uh, given the, the context that he presents them, it's not entirely clear what whether that was maybe a, a feeding response or a feeding reflex response associated with a wild mouse being in the enclosure or whether that was antagonism associated with the breeding season. I don't think it's totally clear. Uh, did he have but a, interesting nonetheless. And I think. Did he have it, males in the cage also, uh, Rob? I don't, I didn't remember seeing that. I don't remember if there were males. Uh, I, if there was a male in there at that time or not, I know that the, my understanding was that the females were maintained together for several years and that this mm. was, it wasn't as though, oh, an, an introduction of those particular animals. That's why we're in the space of, was it, uh, response to a stimuli, uh, an external stimuli or was it, um, if a male was introduced, if then it, you know, was antagonism associated with the reproductive cycle? I don't know, yeah. unclear, but yeah, it was interesting in that they were very large animals and that they had been maintained together for a long time. Right. As I may have said uh, previously, the uh, general duration that I've seen from post-ovulation shed to birth is 105 to 110 days. Um, in my experience, potentially contrasted with the study on wild and ornatus that I had mentioned previously where the females were foraging in July, my females in general uh, stopped demonstrating nocturnal hunting behaviors and refused food after the post-ovulation shed. So they, in my experience, they uh, expressed no inclination to feed, uh, both behaviorally and if presented with an item after that shed until they've um, given birth. Interesting. One interesting bit I know you know about Keith, the Jamaican boa litter from 2021. Um, I saw an interesting thing where, um, and I think, so we, there's, there's a lot here, so jump in wherever you want. But um, I think in terms of animals that are singularly paired, so going against what we were talking about, about utilizing multiple males in, a, in one either with multiple females or uh, exposure to the same female, we talked about seeing alignment of shed cycles in animals that are only paired with one another. Um, and I saw that in that Jamaican boa litter where um, she appeared to ovulate in May, and I expected a post-ovulation shed in the uh, like middle of the third week of May, and the male went opaque, 
and that had been solely paired with her. So they they had both shed before being put together. That wasn't the the basis for when I put them together. Instead, it sort of aligned with the the cycle of the room. They both had shed kind of well in advance of that. Uh, paired them together. The male went opaque. I pulled him out. The female appeared to ovulate uh, while the male was opaque. The female did not go opaque and didn't shed post-ovulation until July 4th, so roughly 50 days, uh, no, 40, 45 days after I would have anticipated it. Um, so the, the, the female dropped her litter only 65 days after her shed. Mm. Um, as I say, the, the standard presentation being 105 to 110 days, but the male shed May 25th. So that if you utilize the date that he had shed, which is when I anticipated she would have shed based on when I noticed ovulation, then the babies would have been birthed on day 105 after his shed. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, so super interesting. I don't know um, why she – so in that litter, she had 17 babies. It was not like um, her – Sometimes, right, when you don't get that shed that you would anticipate. I know this happens more in the Python context. The thought is that it's a, either a smaller ovulation or an ovulation associated with immature follicles. So you tend to see slugs associated with sheds that are mistimed. But, yeah, she had a perfect litter of 17 live babies with no slugs or stillborns, um, yeah, which was interesting in light of the fact that the ovulation was not, I guess, big enough to trigger that shed event. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. The babies generally are born opaque, uh, particularly this last Puerto Rican bow litter I had. They, they were all uh, deeply opaque uh, when they were born, but they don't shed on birth, as is seen with Solomon Island tree boas and others, where within that first day they're shedding. Um, sort of a standard shed presentation if you start, you know, from from that date of being born, so that they're shedding five to ten days after they're being born, after mm. after birth. Mm. Um, in my experience, female Puerto Rican boas will generally readily in the days immediately after they give birth. Um, I'll offer them, you know, a small amount. The either the next the day after or one day later than that and generally get a great response out of that. The female subflavus didn't, in contrast, um, when she bred in 2021, didn't feed until after she had shed, which was approximately three weeks after she gave birth. Hmm. Now, I think you've had pretty good litters, um, so maybe you haven't seen this, but have you seen either species either eat unfertilized ova or stillborn, uh, stillborn babies? So my, I only have one litter of experience with the Jamaican boas and that one, um, as I say, did not have any evidence of the either, uh, slugs or stillborns that I saw, I guess the, the answer, and I think I saw them pretty quickly relative to when they were, um, when they, uh, were born. So I don't think in that context that I have the experience to speak of. Um, but in terms of Puerto Ricans, I have found them uh, previously with uh, both mm, both slugs and stillborn, certainly slugs, 
um, that were still in there, so they hadn't been consumed at that time. But I believe there's literature on them consuming that in the standard kind of boa presentation where they will, some of them at least, will eat those, uh, particularly slugs. In general, the litter size on Jamaicans is uh, an average of 18, so relatively high, with a range of 2 to 34. And I know Tom recently has had a couple that have been towards that high end, right? And I think either the most recent one or a couple of years back, I think he had something like 34, 33 or 34 live babies uh, and a handful of stillborn, you know, three or four stillborns and a handful of thugs in addition to that. So, I mean, on, I think those are, that's a female that's in her teens. And so the capacity, the carrying capacity, right, of that is just uh, overwhelming relative to the first right. litter from the female, the female's first litter that I had of 17, right? So we're talking double that in terms of live babies. And then in addition to that, having uh, slugs and stillborns as well. Um, the babies right. that from my litter, uh, were 10 to 13 inches long and weighed about an average of 13 grams. This next point here that you have down is um, of, of great interest. Yeah, 100%. Um, let me give the stats on the Inornatus litters, and then we'll we'll talk about feeding these guys. So the okay. the litter size range for Inornatus is 12 to 37. Uh, my litters have been 13 or 14 with babies that are 14 to 15 inches long and approximately 15 grams. So I guess the, the relative mass is probably similar between the litter of Jamaican boas and the litters that I've had of Inornatus, but um, kind of in the context of saying uh, more smaller babies on that one subladus litter where the I've had really high consistency on the in or not, where it's each time it's been 13 or 14. Um, I think the 13, I also had a slug. So that each time it's basically been 14, um, you know, 14 offspring or 14, uh, um, you know, potential, uh, 14 follicles probably is what we're dealing with in all of those instances. Um, so the baby, Baby Puerto Ricans, with there being fewer of them per litter, they have been just slightly but noticeably larger than I saw in the Jamaican boa litter. Are they stouter in diameter also or just in length? Um, basically the same, but just longer. So that okay. their then total weight is uh, slightly up. But, yeah, their proportionality is pretty similar, and that does bring us to this, this point. So both these species? are eating, uh, are, have a, I think in the wild they're eating anola species. They definitely want to eat lizards when they're born. Um, and it, I, I don't remember whether this made the podcast or not, so maybe this is duplicative uh, to a conversation we had before. But just in terms of, I think, uh, an important consideration in terms of feeding species that eat lizards in the wild is that the diameter as a limiting factor on a snake's ability to feed, right, if we're feeding a tube to a tube, so to speak, that the diameter of the prey item is the limiting factor, a, an anole that's a medium brown anole, right, so that's maybe a snout event length of two and a half or three inches, 
has approximately the same width as a newborn pinky mouse. So that the uh, capacity, the um, the productive uh, load of that food item on a three-inch snout event length brown anole is astronomically higher, both in terms of uh, overall weight, but also not being uh, so much of the, the mass of a newborn pinky mouse, right, is fat and milk that are not digestible items for um, boas. Um, the important thing to take care with is when we switch those feeders off of anoles and onto uh, immature rodents, we need to make sure that we're upping the feeding schedule accordingly so that if an animal is situated to take a medium-sized anole once a week, if we're switching it to a pinky, two pinky mice, we're going to have to be feeding those two or three times a week to give the same caloric value, uh, particularly digestible caloric value, to a boa um, when we make that shift. So um, I definitely saw that in terms of the Jamaican boa litter. Those that I had transitioned, uh, those that responded to being transitioned off of lizards onto uh, pink mice, I was feeding them frozen thawed, uh, hot frozen thawed pink mice with chick fluff in um, in deli cups. So I would cup them, leave them overnight with that item, um, and that's so that's all kind of a lot relative to giving them either live mice in the container, which they all refused, or uh, or in their enclosure, I should say, which they all refused, or um, presenting them on hemostats. Uh, they, they weren't feeding in that way. So the stress burden of cupping them, feeding them, putting them with, you know, the prep associated with getting that food item ready didn't have me situated to be doing that two or three times a week. So I tried initially, I was just offering that on a once the same schedule that I otherwise would have been feeding, you know, these, um, half-grown brown anoles, and it was to the animal's detriment. All of those that had been willing to accept mice initially then started to decline because the, presumably the, the caloric load of those once-a-week once pink mice were not enough relative to their expectations associated with uh, being fed weekly on medium anoles. Yeah. So I transitioned all of them back to anoles, which I know is, you know, mind-blowing to sort of from the hobby perspective, right? Everything is, the goal is always to be feeding commercial rodents, but, um, or in the sort of the way we've been raised, right? It's sort of the ideology, the standard ideology from the 90s through the teens, if we frame it that way, was always uh, only only commercial rodents. And I saw that, that that really didn't make sense in this context. And all of them then, that then transitioned back to an old, um, perked up associated with that, and those that had been unwilling to take those uh, pink mice, you know, defrosted pink mice in that in the cup methodology, those continued to do great the whole time, and now have transitioned to taking mice, but we're on a, on a stage where I'm not giving sort of those very first newborn pinks, and I'm giving them, uh, feeding them more, still feeding them more frequently, those, you know, once they've transitioned off those items. Certainly, they're in the wild, they eat rodents. Uh, but I think it's one of those where, um, if we're going to try and force the issue of that transition sooner than they would be, um, than the schedule they would have in the wild, where probably they're not, uh, making that transition 
if for nothing else than the sort of niche partitioning uh, within the species, right, where when you have species that the youth, the, the young, eat different items than the adults, they're filling a different part of the, the environment, right? They're not competing with one another in, in the environment. I think when we have species that want to do that naturally in the wild, we need to be careful uh, in captivity. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most interesting things, uh, observations um, on these species that you've brought to my attention, and, and, and it seems, seems so clear now when I think about it. Um, yeah, I'm like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> uh, I love that. I love that uh, whole, whole thought process there and how you got to, to the end on that. Yeah, that's great stuff. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I wish I could claim to have, uh, I wish I had thought of it rather than seeing it happen and <laughs> having the, yeah. the, you know, having it forced into me. But uh, it def- definitely makes sense. And it really gives life to, um, I know that Jeff, for a long time in the context of Turks and Caicos Bowl as the Chrysogaster, um, views people's unwillingness to feed those lizards deep into their life. So several years into their life as deleterious to the ability to keep those in captivity uh, successfully really at all so that uh, he's been more successful particularly in terms of maintenance i know he's still still kind of trying to work through getting great you know getting successful litters out of them um but you know he's had success keeping them well and keeping them in good condition for longer because of that willingness to feed to feed them lizards you know even at a year or two or three years old um Mm -hmm. And I didn't necessarily put together what the basis for that would be, but I, I think the experience associated with feeding these subflavis, um, it really drove home that, well, it's because the mass of prey that they can consume on a lizard body type is just so drastically different than on a rodent body type. Yeah, Je- Jeff has actually mentioned to me also uh I was looking at the banana boas and uh, he, he mentioned to me um, the same thing with those uh, that they just, even if you can get them switched over to mice, they, they just don't seem to fare as well or have the longevity in captivity like if you keep them on lizards. Yeah, and I mean, well, there certainly could be nutritional aspects to that, right? The uh, Depending on the, the source, right, and there, in terms of if you're feeding wild Florida and oles to these, obviously the um, macronutrients and things that are within that prey item are going to be different from a right. one-day-old uh, commercial rodent. But even beyond that, it, I was kind of like trying to trying and failing prior to this to contextualize what that difference would be, and maybe maybe that would be enough. But um, if we're talking about things that are willing to eat them, well, what's the difference? And the answer is if we're feeding them those commercial rodents, then to to get the mass into them that we need, A, you're either going to be feeding a larger item that then is going to be this really dense food bolus, and maybe their physiology isn't designed to break that down efficiently relative to that the density of that mass. So maybe we're getting some like rot associated, rot rather than digestion. Um, mm-hmm. That might be part of it, so that the lizard yeah. is, uh, by being more dispersed, um, maybe it's digesting more the system is designed to digest that in such a way that it, it isn't capable of dealing with this inch long, but same diameter, you know, uh, essentially, right. The mass being 
the mass of the lizard is probably dispersed um, three or four times what the mass is, dis- uh, how it's distributed right. in that yeah. pink mouth. Yeah, yeah, lots to think about. So that, maybe, yeah. it's, maybe it's that. We're getting, you know, I don't know if it's, yeah. That, but certainly the, the proof is in putting on, in terms of those negative impacts, yeah, with Ungaliophis, as you talk about, with Chrysogaster, um, maybe that's part of the, the thing with Grenadensis, right, in terms of their very slow metabolism. And that's mm-hmm. maybe got us in that same spot where if we're talking about obli- essentially obligate, in the context of Grenadensis, obligate feeders on sleeping anoles, yeah. right? So we're very much a, a, a particular niche on that, that um, if they were then giving them something so drastically different in terms of the density um, and size that maybe they're just not digesting it efficiently, and that's part mm-hmm. of the, the lack of um, metabolic growth, you know, kind of the expression of metabolic growth. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah. Definitely something that I've I've seen. Yeah. Should we transition into availability on of the species in captivity? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. As we mentioned, awesome. As we mentioned in passing before, the both of these species are Endangered Species Act listed in the United States. Um, the populations in Europe, I believe, um, essentially what, what we see with these is that there's um, – the European, there's a European population. Some of those animals have been brought into the United States, but it's it's difficult to, and they're they're relatively available, I believe, in Europe and sort of without without legal restriction, at least amongst EU countries. Here in the United States, um, you can't import them for as an Endangered Species Act listed species. You can't import them for commercial purposes, uh, and you can't engage in interstate, so amongst different state transport for commercial purposes. Um, As endangered rather than threatened, they're in a different space. Uh, Both species are in a different space than than are things like indigos, where you can get a commercial permit because those are only threatened, Um, eastern indigos. Um, These, there is not that permit, although there has been a shift of late to move Puerto Rican bios to that space because whether it's a function of a greater understanding of the population in the wild to see that they're not as um, the population is not as at risk as was perceived when they were listed, or they've become more numerous uh, since the seventies when they were listed. Um, and the success with this species in captivity amongst aficionados, even in a non-commercial space have kind of brought fish and wildlife to realize that, you know, we're probably not looking at the risk of smuggling these for commercial purposes, right? Both the population is doing better than was thought, um, and the there's a healthy captive population of those of the uh, Puerto Rican boas in particular. To that point, there was a 2018 study on the genetic diversity of Puerto Rican boas in U.S. captive collections, both private collections and several zoo collections, that concluded that Puerto Rican boas in captivity in the United States exhibited a high degree of genetic diversity relative to wild populations. They identified in the the genetic sampling at least 13 founder females and a sizable number of males that are evidenced in in the population we have now. So they can work backwards to 
to identify that. The study concluded the population is more diverse than expected, and the captive population overall retains a higher than expected number of haplotypes and relatively low signature of loss of heterozygosity. So the upshot of that is despite the fact that these have not been amenable to commercial trade in the United States for 40 to 50 years, um, the small population of people that really like Puerto Rican boats have done a really great job at yeah. um, sort of gifting animals back and forth and, um, you know, just, just making sure that people who have an interest in these uh, have the ability to, to work with them. And they've done really well to, to manage that population. So the study found that the genetically speaking, the, in terms of the diversity, the, the captive population was far exceeded their expectations. Hmm. Where do we stand with the Jamaican bows on that front? So the, unfortunately there hasn't been an equivalent study done at this point. I know Jeff um, has, you know, certainly encouraged that. I think everyone is in the, would be interested in what those results are, but we don't have them at this point. Okay. Maybe Warren can help us. So there wasn't, was there not a, a study on Jamaican boas at one point on genetic diversity? Who, who was the author of the one that you were talking about? I don't know. It was out of UNC. I think it was, I'll have to pull it up. Um, so, there, so there was a paper uh, by uh, Athanasia um, Zika. She actually actually co-authored a paper with her a number of years ago um, where they looked at genetic structure of Jamaican boas. Um, and I'm going to see if I can pull up what the results were of that there. In fact, I, in fact, I had a paper with her and with Gray Reynolds at the same time, it was a it was a paper on Colombian rainbow boas. But um, if I can find, uh, you talk among yourselves, and I will check this out, and I'll report back in a second. <laughs> there was a paper on Jamaican boas, and I can I can dig it up. That'd be interesting. Yeah, so there is there is a paper. It was published in uh, in Molecular Ecology, so a very good journal in 2008 on subflavus and they looked at both mitochondrial and nuclear genetic diversity. Um, they used 87 individuals that were wild born and captured opportunistically over a period of three decades. Um, I'm just trying to find, they, they find, I think pretty significant or decent genetic differentiation. Um, and yeah, across the island of fact, um, they found, uh, relatively strong levels of genetic differentiation. Um, so the Eastern separated, there was like an Eastern and then a, um, a central and then a Western group that were somewhat combined, but showed separate genetic, uh, patterns of genetic structure. Uh, genetically quite diverse. So at least in the wild, uh, they show moderate to high levels of genetic diversity, despite being a species that was, um, that was on the verge of being extirpated at a point. Right. Um, so that there's still quite a bit of genetic diversity. Now, what, what we have in, the, in captivity, I don't know. Um, I don't know the, the origins of all of the captive animals or how many really have been the source for 
the animals that we now see in captivity. I know that that Tom has a decent or has had a decent group of them and has had success with them. Um, I don't know how his compared to Jeff's and so on uh, in terms of their origin, however. But that that would be an interesting thing to look at. And you know what? Yeah. I might have samples in a box. I know that Jeff has sent me like an enormous box of shed skins a number of years ago that had everything from different Sanzinia through all of Corallus and I think into the child of Bothroth as well. It's just finding time to do it is the, uh, is the issue. Now, now that I'm in a, in a, in a position where I'm only teaching one course every year, uh, instead of six courses a year, um, that's going to give me a lot more opportunity to dig into those and, and with them. So. Uh, yeah, watch this space. We'll see what happens. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I think I know. I know he's been super keen. You know, so the the author on the the Inornatus paper was, um, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but Angst A U N G S T in 2018. That was the Department of Biology at UNC, um, hmm. where they had. Uh, looked at the captive, you know, diversity within the captive population in was it, Puerto Rican boats. And I know he's, yeah, he's hopeful that, that to do the same for Subclavis because it would be super interesting, as Keith was saying. So was it was it published in a scientific paper or was it like a master's thesis or, do you know what it, does it say? It's like, you know, conservation biology, conservation genetics or? Let me, I'm looking at the reference on on uh, Jeff and Michael's page. So okay. let me scroll down and see. Um, yeah, certainly not the the level that, that you referenced there. Journal of Undergraduate Research, presumably okay. at UNC. Right. Yeah, because yeah, you know, studies of captive diversity can somewhat be difficult to publish, but I would have thought that that would have went to somewhere like zoo biology or something, conservation genetics, but yeah, it depends on how you pitch it. Um, but, that, but I think what what it suggests, yeah. um, at least if the wild, if the samples of subflavus that came out of the wild are distributed across the island and they are, were sourced from dis, from disparate parts across the island, then there should be a, a decent level of genetic diversity in the captive population. I would hope, and hopefully people are swapping animals between each other to to find genetically diverse um, kind of breedings. So that would that would be interesting to look at. Yeah. I can, yeah, uh, definitely. I, Certainly, I mean, that's what we've seen with the Inornadas, you know. Yeah, I can tell you with the Jamaican boas, um, I had gotten um, the male from Jeff first, and he didn't have an unrelated female for me. The following year, I got the female from Tom. Um, I ran it by Jeff, and Jeff said, "If I'm getting it from Tom, it's unrelated to his stock." So, yeah, I mean, in a non-commercial species, right? Particularly in the interstate context, it really is. Um, it is all about you know joy within the project and things. So, um, it's it's not about oh, I need to get a pair of these and start producing them. It's I just want to work with these animals, whether it's a singular animal or then down the road trying to trying to produce some, trying to make those the most effective that we can for the U.S. captive population of these species. Yeah, it's a labor of love for sure. Awesome.
Awesome. Well, in the absence of any other points that you guys think we, we should have made and have not yet made, um, I guess you can you can do our closing, Keith. All right. Uh, great show, by the way, guys. I really enjoyed this one. It was it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. So thank, yeah, well, thank you for that. I think it's, I know I want to have these as well. I don't know if I need to hear these kind of discussions going on. I know I want <laughs> to get the Megan's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you all for listening to Boas, Boas, Boas with Warren, Rob, and myself. Uh, please check out the MPR Networks uh, or the YouTube channel and the website at moralipythonradio.com. You can follow us on most podcast apps, including iTunes and Spotify. And we hope you listen to next month's episode of Boas, 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 where we'll be talking about uh, Madagascan boas. Uh, until then, enjoy your animals and follow your passions, guys. 